Okay, sorry of the show. Now, Darcy and I, we obviously have a toddler in the house. That explains half of what just happened. Um, and despite the difficulty of having a toddler, there's some really cool stages that they go through. They go through different stages and phases. Stages and phases. It's going to be a long day. That can be so adorable and also really frustrating. Right now, our toddler is in the stage of that's mine, right? Boston says that's mine to everything. My toy, my book, my teddy. When Oakley's playing with one of his little stuffed toys, he gets really rocked up about it because she's playing with my giraffe. Um, the other day I said, Boston, who paid for that? And he looked at me blankly for a few seconds and he goes, my toy. I'm, like, I'm sorry I asked, sir. One stage that we haven't quite gotten to yet with our little boy, but I've experienced it plenty with other people's kids is the why stage. You know the one I'm talking about, the, the discontented murmur. Uh, it's the one where every request, every question is met with, but why? But why do I have to stop playing now? But why do I have to leave? But why do we do that? But why do I have to wash my hands? And there aren't many things as frustrating in life as a toddler in the why stage. And the reason it's so frustrating is not because we have to double up the amount of words we have to share in order to get the instruction accomplished. It's not just because we don't like explaining ourselves. That why question is frustrating because sometimes we don't have a reason why. Like, I don't know. Why? Because I said so. I got that one a lot growing up. Why? Because that's just how we do it. That's just how my parents did it. That's what we do in our family. Why? Because I want to. Sometimes that's the best answer that we can muster. And that in and of itself is what makes the why question simultaneously both frustrating and really important. Asking why allows us to reveal and uncover more truth. Now, a lot of our Elam Leadership College interns, they learn um, at, at Bible College this um, problem-solving technique called the five whys. If you're looking to get to the root cause of an issue, it's as simple as asking why multiple times. It's not an annoying way, but genuinely wanting to understand. Let me give you an example. Let's say I ran a red light, which I would never. That's why I use an example that's so outrageous, you know it's just made up. <laughs> Let's say I was to run a red light, and you might say that's a problem. Perhaps it is, but it's maybe not the root cause of the problem. Right, so we ask the five whys. Why did I run a red light? Well, because I was late for work. Why was I running late? Because I woke up late. Why did I wake up late? Because my phone was dead. Well, why was your phone dead? Because I didn't charge it. Why didn't you charge it? Because Darcy stole my charger. And so the solution is to buy another charger, right? Darcy's the reason I ran a red light. <laughs> I'm obviously joking. I cannot remember what it feels like to wake up late. Like, what is that? Teenagers, you love it. At Christmas box yesterday, I had a young man coming. I'm so tired. I woke up 20 minutes ago. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I woke up four hours ago. <laughs> Obviously a made up example there because Darcy wouldn't steal my charger nor would I run a red light, but you get the point. Why questions reveal something. That's why they're so important, and especially when it comes to reading the Bible. When we ask why, when we're reading Scripture, it helps us to uncover more truth. Let me show you what I mean by going to our text for today. That we're going to base ourselves in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. A little longer, but I'll read it out to you, and it will be on the screen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Everyone say disturbed. 
and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, who's the king, called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Liar. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Now this is a really famous account uh, of a star rising in the sky that guides three different magi or wise men from the east and they come and give gifts to baby Jesus of gold, frankincense and myrrh. There's a couple of really immediate things I just want to point out in the text before we go into some deeper stuff. Firstly, the story is only recorded in the book of Matthew. That's fascinating in and of itself because most scholars believe that the book of Matthew had a Jewish audience in mind and yet it's the only gospel that records this journey of foreign kings to come and pay homage to Jesus. That's interesting because these foreigners weren't of immediate relevance to the Jewish people, so usually it wouldn't be included, but it is included in the book of Matthew. Secondly, while the popular Christmas carol talks about three kings, the text doesn't actually support at all that they're kings, or even that there were three of them. We make that assumption that there were three of them because there were three different types of gifts, but they probably traveled in an extensive caravan with different supporting staff and servants, and while they would have been men of influence, they certainly weren't kings. And finally, four times in this narrative, we see a supernatural star mentioned that rose to announce the arrival of Jesus and direct the Magi to the place of his birth. Nowhere else in the New Testament is this mentioned. And so this causes me to ask, God, why did you put a star above Bethlehem? Like, why was that the method that you chose? Why the star? Was it to make our nativity plays nice and cute and pretty? Was it so that we could put a star on, on top of the tree or a... <laughs> Or was it something more important? Why did he put a star to mark Jesus' birth? And as we know, why questions reveal more of truth as we ask them. So let's take a look at the star that rose above Bethlehem and what we can learn from it. Why did God put a star above Bethlehem? Firstly, it's this, to confirm. The first reason he did it was to confirm. See, the presence of the star in the sky confirmed a prophetic word that was given centuries ago in Numbers chapter 24. The context of Numbers 24 is quite fascinating. The Israelites are journeying across the plains of Moab and the king of the Moabites fears them. And so the king essentially hires a sorcerer called Balaam to try and curse Israel. He doesn't like that they're there. But God won't allow Balaam to curse Israel and it ends up being that he blesses the people of Israel. Why? Because you can't bless, you can't curse that which God has blessed. And God has a way of turning things around. And as part of that blessing, Balaam says this in Numbers 17, 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, Jacob in this context is just another name for Israel. Balaam says that this will happen in the last days which in the Old Testament was a phrase used to describe the days of Israel's Messiah. So not the last, last days, but the day that the Messiah would come, that's when it would happen. In other words, if you were to ask me what this means and why God put a star above Bethlehem, the simplest answer I could give you is this, God said he would. 
God literally said that that's what he would do. He says in Numbers that when his Messiah, the king, came, that a star would come out of Jacob. And so when Jesus came, he rose a star out of Jacob. God literally did what he said he would do. Centuries have passed, and between God delivering that message through Balaam and Jesus actually arriving, but no amount of lapsed time makes God less good on his word. Why? Because you have to understand that one of the simplest and most profound testimonies of a Christian is simply this. God did it because he said he would. To believe God at his word. God healed me. Why? Because he said he would. God provided for me because he said he would. God delivered me because he said he would. God still loves me. Why would he? Because he said he would. And the God I serve is good to his word. If you want a practical application from the star, it's simply this. If you're still waiting on a promise from God, you can wait with confidence. Because no matter how much time has lapsed between God giving the promise and eventually the promise being fulfilled, you can wait in confidence knowing that it will be fulfilled because God said he would. The first reason he raises a star up is because centuries ago he said, when this happens, I'm going to raise a star. And he came true on his word. He's faithful to his promises. The second reason that a star was used is this, to announce. The second reason is to announce the arrival of Jesus. You know, in the first century, this expectation began to spread right around the community and society that a ruler would arise from Judea. They, 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 it was ingrained within them. They learned that in school. They knew that that was going to happen. And you can tell that King Herod is familiar with the star symbolism that would announce the arrival of Jesus because he doesn't challenge the Magi at all. He knows that a star rising out of Israel to announce the coming of the King of Israel is going to happen. Instead, his first reaction is quite interesting. He says, it says, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The news of the star rising doesn't excite him. It doesn't surprise him, but it disturbs him and upsets him. Why? In its simplest form, King Herod was completely terrified of losing his power. He is not the rightful ruler of Israel. He's manipulated his way to the throne by aligning himself with the Roman Empire, and he's tried to rub shoulders up or, or please the Jews by pretending to convert to Judaism and building this big spectacular temple in Israel. He's like, I'm giving you all that you want. Like, I'm with you. He's playing a big game. He's scared that if the rightful ruler of the Jewish people arises, then these people from the East, the Magi, like the, whoever they were coming, are going to align themselves with this new leader and be a great threat to his power. So after these wise men escape back to their own country, he gives an order for every baby boy under the age of two in Bethlehem to be killed. Like he is that terrified of losing his power that he goes to extreme measures to take out every baby boy. Power is different from authority though, isn't it? Have you noticed that? That you can sometimes be in a room and someone might have power, but they don't really have the authority. Someone might be in charge, but they're not really the one making things happen. Someone might have the title of boss, but they're not the one people listen to. One person might have the position, but there's another person really in charge. And there's a difference between just having power and having authority. And listen, spiritual authority beats earthly power every day of the week. I mean, look at this text. This is quite fascinating. Jesus isn't even two years old yet. Now, I know it too, they can cause a bit of a ruckus, but he's, he's a baby. And his mere presence on earth has King Herod so disturbed that historians tell us he's building fortifications along the eastern border of his kingdom and killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He is so desperate to keep his power that he goes to those extreme lengths. But no power in the world could stand against the, th the authority that Jesus has. Earthly power will always be disturbed by Jesus' spiritual authority. 
But just because it's disturbed by it doesn't mean it can stand up against it. No power in the world can stand up against a Savior that has all authority. Let me add one final thought to this. This is interesting. The text says it wasn't just Herod who was disturbed by the news of a rising star announcing the birth of the Messiah, but also all of Jerusalem was disturbed by the news of a rising star. This is weird because Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. If anyone should have been pumped on the announcement of the arrival of the king of the Jews, it should have been them. If the king of the Jews comes and threatens, oh, sorry, I skipped a bit. The, the, the word Jerusalem here represents the, the leadership of Israel at the time. This verse gives us insight into the spiritual health and leadership of Israel. They've aligned themselves politically with Herod. And if his power base is threatened, then so are theirs. That's why they're disturbed. They should have been happy about it, but all of a sudden they're so intertwined into this mixed up leadership, this corrupt leadership. You'd expect them to be excited, but they're not. If the king of the Jews comes and threatens Herod's power, because they're aligned with him, well, it threatens their power too. And this is a caution to any one of us that find ourselves in a position of leadership or power. It can be so addictive that the very thing you've been longing for becomes the very thing you try to destroy. Because we know how the story ends, right? Jesus does come to Jerusalem and it's these very religious leaders that demand that he be killed. And in the end, they want to hold their position more than they want to receive the promised king. Like they're all about Jesus. He's going to come, he's going to be Messiah. And then all of a sudden it comes and they're like, oh, not if I lose my power. Not if I have to step down and surrender. They're more concerned with maintaining power in their own life than surrendering to the coming king. Their position was more important to them than the Messiah was. Their power was more important than the promises of God. It should disturb us when we find the prospect of losing power disturbing. And for the believers in the house today, anytime you find yourself desperately trying to hold on to power, if you feel disturbed at the prospect of losing power, you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. Is my position of power more important to me than Jesus? Do I want to hold on to power or do I want to surrender to the one who has all authority? Why did Jesus, sorry, why did God put a star above Bethlehem? Well, the second reason was to announce the arrival of Jesus, the King of the Jews. To confirm, to announce, and the final one is this, to draw. The final reason that God hung a star in the sky was to draw the Magi from the east to himself. And as I say that, you probably sat there and went, okay, cool. But that's really abnormal. Like that's a really odd statement for me to make. God rises the star to draw the men from the east to himself. Let me tell you why it's weird. The book of Matthew tells us that the Magi came from the east. Magi is a term of Persian origin. These were a famous set of astrologers and dream interpreters who served the Persian king. In other words, it was their job to observe the skies. At times, their preoccupation with the skies turned into some kind of like divination or idolatry, which is obviously forbidden by the people of God. But I'm fascinated that God uses something that these people did know to draw them to something they didn't. God uses the star that these guys were experts in to draw them to Himself. There's been so much debate about the star, and many people have tried to connect it with an actual astrological event. They're like, ah, when this thing happened, that's what that was, but I think there's a much more plausible option. There can be no doubt that the star was supernatural. The star guides them to a specific house. I'm not aware of any other star that could do that. A star could guide you in a direction, sure. It could lead you to a general place, sure, but to guide them to a specific house where Jesus was, this was a different kind of star. 
I also want to point out that throughout the narrative of Jesus, God uses angels to announce to Jewish people the birth of Jesus. You would have, you know, the angel arrives to um, Mary and to <laughs> Elizabeth and her husband. He arrives to Joseph. This is, we good. <laughs> the angel appearing is a common one, right? All throughout the New Testament, arriving, announcing the arrival of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, we see that angels can be referred to as stars. So perhaps this is what the star was. Perhaps. I'm not saying it definitely is. An angel guiding the Magi to the very birthplace of Jesus. How else would a regular star do that? Like the angels who appeared to the Jewish shepherds announcing Jesus' birth. Maybe it's not coincidental that we would usually have an angel or a star on top of our Christmas tree. But the Magi who were more familiar with stars and less familiar with angels, maybe the angels appeared to them as what they understood in order to draw them towards what they didn't understand yet. See, if you sit in church and you're like, man, I just, I don't have the knowledge. I'm gone, you say that, I don't get it. I'm lacking in knowledge. I just don't understand what's going on. It's okay. It's good that you're here. God speaks to you in a language that you can understand. God uses what you do know to draw you to what you don't. That's why Jesus, all throughout Scripture, he would speak to farmers in farmer languages, right? Language. He'd speak to fishermen in fishermen language. He uses what we know to draw us to what we don't know. God knows how to speak your language. And so he draws the men of the East with something they do understand towards himself. Axon, you can join me on keys. I said earlier that the term Magi is of Persian origin. The Persians were the empire that came after the Babylonian empire. Now, I'll give you a small amount of Bible history to help you understand the significance of that. God had given instruction to Israel about a special land to call their own. You would have heard of it called the promised land. This beautiful land that they would inherit that would be fruitful and abundant. Well, after centuries of repeated disobedience and the warnings that God gave the people of Israel to stop being disobedient, he said, if you keep doing that, you're going to lose the land. Well, eventually they didn't listen. They continued to be disobedient and turn their backs on God. Well, eventually their land is invaded by Babylon and many Israelites are taken captive to Babylon. When Babylon falls, the empire that replaces them is the Persian one. That's why in the book of Esther, she's marrying a Persian king, not a Babylonian one. The empire had changed. So to Israel, the east was the home of the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. The east was where the Israelite oppressors had always traditionally lived. In fact, the only reason that the Persian Magi would have even heard of this prophecy from the book of Numbers about the star that would rise out of Israel is because of the Israelites they had taken captive and had set up home in their town, in their country. They heard it from them. It wasn't their culture. It wasn't part of what was going on for them, but they took the Israelites captive. They brought them back to Babylon and these people continue to talk about what they're believing for. Continue to talk about one day a star is gonna rise out of Jacob, rise out of Israel, and it's gonna be the announcement of the coming of Jesus. And so these men, I hear this, that's interesting that you say that. So then it gives context to what, how they respond when the star does eventually rise up. And here is God hanging a star in the sky to draw the very people that had held Israel captive. I mean... This is just fascinating. Can you marvel at the grace of God just for a moment? Of all the people in the world He could draw, of all the people that God could call out to, He calls out to the idolaters of the East, the 
former oppressors of the East, the ancient enemy of Israel, who have now come to worship at His feet. And isn't that just a scandal of grace? If anyone deserved to have their back, have God turn His back on them, it's these people. They literally oppressed God's people. And He thinks, who should I draw? Who should I bring? Who should I draw to myself to bow down on bended knees and worship? God says those people. It's a lesson that nothing we could do could possibly disqualify us from receiving the grace of God, that we're never too far gone. But it's such a scandal that it feels unfair. Have you ever had someone treat you badly? You likely have. Speak down on you, speak badly about you, speak behind your back, patronize you, antagonize you. How do you feel when someone you love goes and makes friends with that person? Not good, right? And yet God's looking at the people of Israel who proverbially spat on Israel. And He says, I'm gonna use something they understand because I'm gonna draw them to myself. I can only imagine how Mary and Joseph felt as they saw these men approaching them. The men that represented everything that they didn't like. They're from the East. And I know what people from the East do to us. I've heard stories for years about what the people of the East have done to our people. And so as they approach, likely in their caravan with supporting staff and servants, this whole thing, they're on their way. They've got good intentions, but how are Mary and Joseph to know that? You could imagine it would, be, it would seem right that Mary and Joseph were like, get away, turn them away, we don't want you. To hold baby Jesus back and say, he's ours, not yours, you can't have him. You can imagine that that would be a realistic response for Mary and Joseph, but that's not what they do. They don't judge these people on their past, but they judge them on their bended knee before the Saviour. Look at the contrast here for a moment. While the Israelite leaders, the ones who should be excited about a rising star coming out, they are the ones who are disturbed. And then you've got the oppressors in the East who are hearing about this rising king in the foreign land. They should be the ones disturbed and yet they are the ones that are drawn to God. Those are the ones that respond and come to worship. The people you expected to come didn't come to Jesus and the ones you never expected to did. And that's a lesson for you and I. That it's not our job to try and figure out who's gonna come to Jesus and who isn't. It's not our job to try and figure out who deserves to come to Jesus and who doesn't. It's not our job to judge the hearts of men. All we need to do is hang a star in our sky. We need to represent Jesus, witness to Jesus, bear the name of Jesus. We hang a star in our sky and we watch to see who it draws because sometimes it draws people you would least expect it to. And within that point, one final question comes. If that star draws the unexpected, how will we respond when the unexpected person comes? when the former oppressor comes, when the former captor comes, when the argumentative or belligerent come, when the people who were rude to you spoke down on you, how will we respond when they come? Will we judge them on their past? Or will we realize they're actually just like us, sinners on bended knee before the Savior? Church, the unexpected people from our community are coming. And our question is, how will we respond? Will we judge them on their past? Or as they come and bend their knee before Jesus, 
will we welcome them in as family? Because when you put the star out, you never quite know who it's going to draw. Let me pray. God, I thank you that your promise is that you draw people to yourself. And you do it in the most creative, specific, personalized ways. That you speak a language that we understand. To those that are all caught up on the apparent barrier of science, God, you speak to them that way. For those that need to hear firsthand stories of God moving in their life, God, you align things to speak to them that way. God, you know the condition of our heart. You know what's going on. And I just pray, Lord, that as each person in this room would take upon themselves that responsibility to be a shining bright star for the glory of God. God, will we have open hearts to believe that you might actually draw people to us that we least expected. And when people come and they ask questions, what did you do in the weekend? What's this God you believe in? Who is He? How do you know He's real? God, give us the answers. Give us the grace. Give us the understanding to engage with that that more men and women and children might be drawn to you.